This is the Emergency Medical Minute, sponsored by Health One. In early March, before the effects of COVID-19 swept the nation, the Emergency Medical Minute collaborated with CarePoint Health to host a brewcast on pediatric emergencies. Here is Dr. Leslie Turanjo presenting on pediatric fever. some of you guys from working at Swedish for the last few years. So this is a topic that's near and dear to our hearts all through cold and flu season. We'll talk specifically about unique considerations for pediatric-specific patients with fever, workup and management by age, and then when you need to admit, when is it a good idea to involve your supervising physician, and ultimately safe disposition home versus uh, return precautions and things. And the source for all of these things is up to date. They have various articles on fever by age workups for fever of unknown origin, Kawasaki's disease, a whole bunch of the things that we're going to be covering. There are really nice flowcharts in those up to date articles that I would recommend that you guys reference if you have any concerns. They're actually very useful. And so that's what I've used as a source for my today. So, specific to pediatric fever, fever itself is officially 100.4 in a rectal temp. We do prefer rectal temp for infants. There's a whole lot less variability, especially axillary temps are never right, like never. If the parents report measuring a fever at home, even if it is temporal, whatever, that counts as a legit fever. If they say that it, they just felt warm, that does not count. Because I know, like, just comparing, like, feeling my kids' foreheads all the time, like, they always feel hot and sweaty. Like, always. So that does not count. Teething, a lot of times parents will attribute the source of fever as teething. That is not actually a thing. And so, no, you cannot count uh, a source of a fever as teething. Depending on their vaccination status, that changes the workup drastically. So it's very helpful if you're familiar with the vaccination status especially in those first few years of life, particularly knowing that at two, four, and six-month well baby visits, they get the Hib and pneumococcal vaccines, and those are definitely shown to decrease the risk of invasive bacterial illness in that age group. And so knowing, have they had all three sets by the time they're six months, in which case they're much more covered? Have they only just had one set, and so then not as much? And so just knowing that they're up-to-date isn't actually enough for pediatrics. Also, realizing that how long the fever has been lasting does change the workup. So we consider acute illness as fever uh, five days or less. You start adding, considering Kawasaki's disease to your differential once they've had at least five days of fever. And the, fe- the workup does change if they have a fever greater than seven days, because then it changes the fever of unknown origin. Yes. It is, yes. Because... It- as you know, like kids pass around so many things in daycare that it is very rare that they're well for very many days in a row, especially if they're in daycare in February. It's almost impossible. So the easiest one is actually the youngest ones. So if the kiddo is under 28 days of age, it is easy. You do everything and you admit them. No brainer, right? So the reason for that is because newborns are terrible at telling us, am I a little bit sick? Am I having a rough day? Am I septic? It all looks the same. They're fussy and they just don't eat as well, right? It's almost impossible to tell clinically. But the reason we care so much is because you can see up to 3% risk of meningitis, 5% bacteremia, and up to 28% have a UTI. So you do all the things. You do add a chest x-ray if they have respiratory symptoms, which is really common this time of year. You add HSV studies if there is a parental risk of cold sores or if you see a vesicular rash. I think the baby is worried about the LP that I'm talking about here. Uh, So even if the baby tests positive for bronchiolitis, they have RSV, they have flu, you see it in otitis on exam, which is unlikely, but whatever. You still do the full rollout sepsis workup. So this one is by far the easiest. 
you treat with ampicillin and whatever cephalosporin is in stock in your pharmacy these days, just look up the list of options and up to date in whatever one your pharmacy stocks use that one. Um, and you add a cyclovir if you have any concern for HSV. And those kids get admitted for 48 hours. I just tell the parents they're in timeout till their cultures are resulted of at least 48 hours. And that one's easy. Fever of 29 to 90 days. If they are not well appearing, if they are truly irritable, if they are truly lethargic, then you do the full workup no matter what. You do see a lot of different things in this age, particularly septic arthritis or bacteremia because of UTI, and those kids do appear toxic oftentimes, so just do all the things for a toxic appearing child. But if they're well appearing, they're smiling at you, they're babbling, they're having, a, you know, you're having a great time examining them, and they just have this fever but no other source, then urine is the most important thing. We do very much prefer a Kathy way over anything else. UA and urine culture, please, please, please remember to order the urine culture. That is critical, but it's sometimes missed if you have to order them separately, which is why that P's under five order set exists, so you don't accidentally miss it. And then add a CBC and a blood culture, CRP, procalcitonin, if you can get the results in under an hour, then it is actually clinically useful. And then if you see a well-appearing baby with bronchiolitis and a fever, you actually don't have to do a further workup because there are very low likelihood of actually having bronchiolitis and another thing going on. Flu is different. If they're influenza positive, it is recommended that you still check a urine because they are actually still quite likely to have a UTI in addition to influenza. And I certainly have seen those together pretty often, actually. So that's a little different. But those flow charts actually show that really well. And it's like, do they have bronchiolitis? Okay, stop the workup right there. Okay, do they have flu? Okay, still get the urine. It's flow charts are beautiful. Admit if they're ill-appearing, start ceftriaxone. If they have a normal urine, but their white blood cell count is really high, then you can consider doing an LP and ceftriaxone in those cases for that risk of invasive uh, bacterial infection. That's a consideration thing. If you have that situation happen, I would talk that through with your attending first and kind of make a decision. And again, we're always happy to help you guys run through that. Fever, three to 36 months, this is a huge range of developmental stages and vaccination stages, right? So it's a huge range, but that's the chunk that up-to-date clusters together. So fever in this age, we really are more interested in a high fever rather than that 100.4 number. So 102.2 rectally is where we definitely warrant an evaluation if there's no source identified. U-type prevalence is actually quite high. The recommendation for getting cathyways is different based on sex and circumcision level, and so kind of see that there. The risk of bacteremia in completely immunized kids, which in this case is they've had at least three Hibs, three pneumococcal vaccines, so that means they have to be at least six months old. In those completely immunized kids, the risk of bacteremia is less than 1%. And in those kids, E. coli and Staph aureus are now the most common pathogens for bacteremia. So that urosepsis is, is a thing that definitely happens pretty often. If the kids are incompletely immunized, which technically is any kid under six months of age, because they haven't had those three sets, then you still do the blood workup and that kind of helps guide you there. Some things that can give you a hint of what you're dealing with on the exam. The exam is starting to be a lot more helpful in this age compared to the newborn age. If they have oral lesions, we see we do see primary herpes outbreaks sometimes, especially if there's a parent who has cold sores, and those tend to be more anterior ulcers, and their gums are very swollen and often bleeding. Posterior lesions, especially on the posterior tonsillar pillars, soft palate, all on their tongue as well, are more common in hand, foot, and mouth. Respiratory symptoms, you often see tachypnea and complaints of chest or abdominal pain in kids with pneumonia. Joint pain with passive motion or tenderness palpation in a certain extremity is very concerning for septic arthritis. Even in a two-month-old, they will do what Karen was talking about. They will keep that joint externally rotated and flexed. And 
even in a two-month old, the mom's like, oh, he has to have his leg like that or he's going to cry. And then, like, he has a septic <laughs> And he did. So, skin findings that you can find helpful. There are plenty of viral exanthems that I think serotonin is going to go over. And then looking for petechiae, sense cellulitis, those kind of things can give you somewhat of a clue of yeah. So when, what are we talking about? We're talking about that ill-appearing child. We do want you to involve your attending sooner rather than later in these cases if they truly are irritable. A few things that parents have often told me is, like, he cries every time I move him, so I've just left him in his car seat because he screams anytime I try and pick him up like he's really in pain. That is a septic joint or meningitis or something terrible. So that story needs an LP right now. Or they just can't sue them. I had a 14-month-old that parents brought in a couple days ago, and they said he's been crying for three days straight. We have not been able to sue them for three days straight. And I'm like, and he really was. He was truly irritable and inconsolable on the exam. And I'm like, okay, you get an LP too, even though he's 14 months old and vaccinated, but because he really was irritable. Lethargy is one of those, like, parents are saying, I just, I can't get him to wake up to feed. And he's like, you can't get him to hardly wake up in the ER as well. Or altered mental status in an older child. It's really creepy looking when you see it. You won't miss it. Other things that you look for is the cap refill. Do they have a particular rash or early answers, respiratory distress? And those ones phone friend. So fever and older kids, we see just all the time because they're just in school and in daycare and preschool and they're just coughing on each other all day long. Workup in this case is a lot more symptom driven and it's you really only do the workup if it's going to change your management. So we don't do routine labs, we don't do routine IVs or anything like that. What I do do every time is ibuprofen and a popsicle. It has a 99.9% .9 success rate. It's magical. And that Right. And the more important thing with that, if the kiddo, like the parents are just afraid of the fever itself, but the kid is like literally running around the room, then that's really discussing, you know, fever fears and then good return precautions. Because like we had talked about before, kids often will get sicker as their illness progresses. And so making sure the parents understand, okay, if, if we're not just watching for fever, what are the doctors actually concerned about? And it's, you know, are, do they have labored breathing? Are they making adequate urine output? Are they coming altered and things like that? And that's what we actually want them to watch for and bring them back in for. Other things that can kind of point you to a specific diagnosis of fever in this age, sore throat, fever, headache, abdominal pain, and no coughs, you can certainly screen for strep. Any urinary complaints, especially with urinary accidents in a potty trained child, it's very highly likely to have a UTI, plus minus constipation, those go together really nicely too. And then a cough with a prolonged or recurrent fever, certainly is concerning for pneumonia. Influenza testing especially, I don't, I haven't had very many negative flu tests this year, like they're just, everyone has flu B for a while, now flu A, it's, it's a thing and just helping parents understand with influenza they're going to have a fever about 104 to 106 it's going to last seven days it sucks i'm sorry even with tylenol and ibuprofen they're probably still going to have a fever it's okay so just let them know appropriate things so less common fever presentations that you do see occasionally though are a little bit more rare kawasaki's disease the diagnostic criteria they have to have fever greater than five days conjunctivitis mucositis rash it's usually a edema of hands and feet lymphadenopathy a workup in that case is labs as listed it's one of the few times we do get an e are. And then the treatment for that is pretty much always admit. You can consult cardiology. It's almost impossible to get an echo in the ER. And so they'll get admitted for echo, IVIG, and usually aspirin therapy. Those kids are not well appearing. They are uncomfortable. They are miserable. And they're usually older school age kids. Fever of unknown origin, technically, the definition is fever of at least 101 every day for at least eight days. And there's no other diagnosis apparent. Missed UTI is by far and away the most common cause of fever of unknown origin. And you can think of like, especially in those kids that have flu and then get a UTI, they have a fever from their flu for like six days and then they, it just doesn't go away. And it's like, okay, now they definitely need a urine checked because now they have UTI. So differential for that is huge. Um, it can be different infectious diseases, connective tissue diseases, 
cancer processes, and so the workup is listed there. If some of these kids actually look fine, then those kids can follow up with ID as an outpatient, and you just consult them in the ER. But if they are at all ill-appearing, they can get everything done a whole lot faster if you would just admit them and have an ID see them as an inpatient, but there's kind of a wide range there. And I think that's all I have. Yep, we're good. Questions? Anyone? Yes. process a lot of times especially during February if you can just let them do a flu test <laughs> like just start with that and say why don't we just start with this we'll do a popsicle and ibuprofen and we'll see if the flu test is positive and it's a potty trained age child you can do flu and urine your workup is done Especially if you can just convey that you are so concerned about their baby is might die. Like, <laughs> I am so worried. I am not going to sleep tonight. Please, as a parent, can we just start with this? And then I'll, I'll circle back to you when we get those results. And we'll just do it step by step. I'll fill you in. We won't do anything that's unnecessary. But can we just start with this? Very few parents will refuse the nasal washes and things like that because it helps their baby breathe better, they feel better. So if you can get the nasal wash and then the urine and then, like, see how it goes. But if the baby is truly irritable, then absolutely you have to get the court order and just keep going. We are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education. Please help us out by rating us on iTunes, following us on social media, and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.